You know, depression or discouragement or being burnt out, it's like an invisible boxer. It'll punch you in the face. Worse than that, it'll take your family members that you love and it'll throw them up against the ropes. Take friends of yours and just bash them to the ground and you see the damage being done to yourself. You see the damage being done to your family, people you care about. But it's like this invisible boxer that you cannot find, you cannot get your arms around it because it's this invisible force of darkness that's impacting you. Yeah, I remember my first encounter, I'm not one to lean toward depression typically, but in ninth grade I had like this six month period of time that I fell into a deep, deep, dark depression. One of the major things God used to bring me closer to him. About 10 years ago when we first moved to Cincinnati, I remember driving my daughter home, she was in first or second grade, and she also not really prone to depression, but I found that just a deep sadness had been over her for weeks. Pulled over the side of the road and I said, honey, what's going on? And she just tears dripping down both, uh, both cheeks. And I said, honey, what's wrong? She said, dad, I just miss my house. I don't have any friends. I miss my room. I miss our old church. And I just felt so hopeless and, and so helpless that this girl that I loved so much was um, just had this spirit of darkness or sadness about her that I'd just never seen before. About three years ago, you know, Beth and I felt like we were in just incredible attack spiritually and just felt a spirit of discouragement or darkness or depression. And I remember one day I sat down uh, across the kitchen table with her. I said, honey, uh, Right now, we're thinking straight enough that we can actually deal with this. A year from now, I'm not sure we'll be able to. <laughs> so we, we got to intervene now while we still got some sense about us to see if we can pray against this, work against this, or to intervene. And God's done some amazing things in the last three years. And, and one of the passages that God has used in my life is my favorite passage in the whole Bible, which is what we're looking at tonight, which speaks to that very principle that we found in our lives, which is that depression requires intervention, and specifically a three-part intervention, that we're going to look at the the conditions that lead to depression or discouragement. We're going to look at the symptoms that come out when you're sort of headed down that road, and then we're going to look at the remedies, and you're not going to believe how practical and how specific the remedies are that God is going to give Elijah as he tumbles into this rabbit hole in this darkness. In fact, what I hope is as we look at these three parts of intervention, that you're going to realize that you're not alone, whether you tend toward discouragement or you're trying to work with somebody in your life who's discouraged or depressed. You're going to find that there is hope, that you can overcome that paralysis of not knowing what to do, that there can be a way out. Statistics say that uh, women are twice as likely to be discouraged as men, and depression hits men a lot too, especially with midlife and other transitional points in their life. I heard a quote from a police officer who was going through depression. He described it this way. It started off as a loss of interest to the point at which I didn't feel like doing anything. Sean Colton, a national diving champion, said this way. You have no interest in the future because you end up figuring out or feeling like you don't have any future. Well, that's exactly how Elijah's going to feel. And yet, when you look at the first few verses, you're going to say, Chad, you have totally misdiagnosed this this passage. This guy is not head toward a depression. This guy's on a high. And yet, these conditions are going to set up just in in 12 verses how he goes from the high point to the low point in this passage. 
Let's begin by looking at the conditions. We're in 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, Elijah turns to Ahab and says, go up, eat, drink. There's the sound of the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And then he bowed down on the ground. He put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and he looked and he said, it's nothing. So seven times he said, go again. Nothing. Then it came to pass on the seventh time he said, well, there is a cloud. But it's as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. One of the conditions that can lead to depression is after a long wait. As we've been studying this passage, what we've discovered has been a long, long famine. With that long famine, there's been no rain. With that long rain, you know, there's been some incredible moments of resurrection, but there's also been moments where Elijah has had to survive on the food that he got from ravens that came from who knows where. Often it's during a long wait that we get set up for a, a major fallout because the adrenaline that's been going, the, we just got to hold on a little bit longer, it's been going on, set us up for a fall. For some of you, you know what that's like. It's the long wait that we see here with Elijah, this long wait of waiting to have a baby or getting through a long-term sickness or finally wondering if you're ever going to get through this lawsuit or caring for someone who's discouraged, or caring for someone with an illness. It's during that long wait that that you could set yourself up to no longer have the, the reservoir you need for your needs because you've been so pouring out to other people. And that's what Elijah's going to find as he heads into this spiral downward. Next part of the passage gives us another condition. And this one's shocking to me. Because again, this is the last guy you would think who's going to get discouraged. But one of the conditions for depression sometimes is right after a spiritual victory. Things are going so incredibly well and you don't even see it coming. Your guard is down. But you're going to go from the boom to the bust. From the dove that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased to the next moment you're with the devil wandering in the wilderness. Well, here we are at the peak of a spiritual victory as he calls down rain for all these years and months that have been gone. He said, go tell Ahab that little fist is going to bring down rain. And tell Ahab, prepare your chariot. Go down before the rain stops you. And it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was not just rain, there was heavy rain. And Ahab rode ahead and went to Jezreel. And we are at the culmination, high point Literally, this is a man who prays and God hears him and rain comes pouring down and yet that high is going to set him up for a low and I think the third condition tells us why. When we get physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted because we're so up in this spiritual high that we don't realize that we've depleted our reservoir and we become exhausted for Elijah, he's so pumped up about what God's going to do that the hand of the Lord comes upon him He girded up his loins, pulls up his outer garment. He runs ahead of Ahab, who's in a chariot, by the way, to the entrance of Jezreel. He's like, oh my goodness, this is what I've been waiting for. The famine's over. God is using me to bring down rain. Chariot. Ahab, in his royal chariot, took off. I think I could beat him. And he is outrunning this chariot, showing again, this guy is in shape. You're going to find in a moment just how in shape he is. 
He is literally outrunning a chariot. He's probably got the adrenaline going. He's got the spiritual juices going. And all of this spiritual high is going to deplete him in such a way that he doesn't see the cliff ahead of him. And I think about some of the conditions for discouragement or depression you may see. It's when you get physically exhausted. It's the post, right? It's postpartum. It was all the buildup to having a baby and then it's the post fall off. Some of us, it's not that. It's the post project. You worked for six months. You worked for two years to put this deal together. And, then, and they said yes. And now you're, you're ready to move on. But all that energy and waiting that brought up to this point, you sort of have this crash. Because you had everything on this. I, I used to have a lot of post-sermon. Like Monday was like I'd fall into my sermon funk because I'd work so hard on, on this moment and this service. There's sort of a letdown factor. Preparing for a marathon. All those months in preparation. And there's the crescendo and you do better than you thought. But then there's this weird letdown factor. Because all that energy had gone into that moment. Well, Elijah finds that. But this ultimately is the straw that breaks Elijah's back is the next condition is when you're under extreme pressure. Now this is Elijah who took on 850 prophets just one chapter ago. This is not a guy prone to be fearful. But suddenly Jezebel comes into the picture. And for whatever reason, Jezebel has an ability to put fear and to break him in a way that no one else had. Not 850 prophets couldn't do what Jezebel's gonna do in one verse. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets and the sword. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. This is the text you get. This is the email you get. This is the lawsuit that comes across. And for whatever reason, you went on a spiritual high to a crushing low in one short little tweet. And here it is. So, Jezebel says, let the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, by this time. Now Jezebel was feared. Her name will mean control. Her name will be destruction for years. And this one little tweet where she says, you killed off my prophets, I'm going to kill off you by tomorrow. Will send him stumbling This pressure, for whatever reason, and we're all different, I don't know what pressure does it for you, but there's some types of pressure that when you put under those pressures, something happens, something changes. We had a guy at my last church, he um, was the equivalent of an air traffic controller, but for the railroad. And was exceptionally good at his job, but he just said every day the stakes were so high, one mistake and people died. As trains were coming in, some with people, some with chemicals, some with you know, machinery, one flip of the switch, get it wrong, one minute late, one minute delayed, wrong person on the wrong track, and he just said, you, you can survive that for a little bit, but when my job became all pressure all the time, the, the physical toll on my body, the, phys- the, the emotional toll on my, 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 my mind, I just broke. I didn't even see it coming. I'm not a guy prone to depression, but under those circumstances, I had to take early retirement because I just couldn't handle that extreme pressure. And for Elijah, it's this pressure of Jezebel that sends him in a downward spiral. And now we move from the conditions to the symptoms. But before we move there, I want you to think to yourself, just 
How are your setup right now? Are you coming out of a time of a long wait? Are you under extreme pressure like Elijah is? Have you just had a great spiritual victory? Or are you just running on fumes because you're physically exhausted? This is the time to zoom in and check your gauges. And if you can't check your gauges to what sets you up for it, maybe you'll see the symptoms in your life that we see in Elijah's. The first symptom is fear. And when he, Elijah, saw that she had made this declaration, he arose and he ran for his life. This is Elijah who stood up to Ahab two chapters ago. This is Elijah who stood up to to all the prophets like two and a half chapters ago. But now he is so filled with fear that he is running to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And one of the symptoms of discouragement or or certainly depression is fear. It's the fear that you're never going to get out of this cave of darkness. It's the fear that there's no hope, that there's no future. It's the fear that it's going to come back. I remember when I went through a time of depression once, it was the time of depression really was horrible, but then suddenly it would lift for a minute. But I remember the spirit of fear that you're so scared that those feelings will come back, that the depression not only ruins this moment, it ruins the good moments too because of fear. Well, it's not just fear. That the thing you need the most during this time is community, people to be around you. And yet one of the next symptoms is withdrawal. And when he saw that, he arose, he runs for his life, he goes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So up to this point, he at least had a buddy to help him, to team with him. Wow, this is tough, but we're doing it together. Wow, this is tough, but come on, we're going to get through this. But now he withdraws from people. And one of the symptoms of depression is you begin to withdraw from people. You begin to step away from the resources that you need. And, and, and even though in one sense you know you need it, you just don't feel like being with people. Just to give you an idea of just how far Elijah's traveled at this point, by the way, here's Jezreel up here. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. Jordan River is that. So he was up in Jezreel. He and his servant have traveled 90 miles down here to Beersheba. So this is quite a journey by foot. I told you the guy's in good shape. He ain't seen nothing yet. So 90 miles, he and his servant have, have been on the run. Is she after us? Who's coming after us? Oh my goodness, Jezreel. Oh, is, is, did you hear something? Did you hear something? Every night, just panic, panic, panic. And that fear of their life, that fear of, of being sought out, that fear, he's just like, you know what? You stay here in Beersheba. And then he is going to go another day's journey, but now he's alone. And those feelings of discouragement, depression are going to get worse because now he doesn't have anybody to be with him. And we're going to lead to the third symptom. And the third symptom is just isolation and exhaustion. Because he's already run 90 miles with somebody, and now he himself, he's alone, went another day's journey into the wilderness. And now he's in the wilderness where it's barren. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. But 18 months ago, I got to sit under a broom tree. That's what they look like. They're called broom trees because you can break off a branch and literally use it as a broom. And you can imagine he's wandering around the heat. It's 120, somewhere between 100 to 120 degrees out, and he's been running by himself for a whole day. He comes up, imagine the broom tree's over here. He comes up, and he's just exhausted. He just sort of collapses, you know, oh. And he comes up to the broom tree. And, you know, I remember when I got to the broom tree, we'd been hiking for about four or five hours that day. And the shade under this little broom tree, it's about 10 to 15 degrees cooler under the broom tree. You can't imagine that that little thing is given that much shade. And so he's curling up under the broom tree and like, 
I am exhausted. I just can't do it anymore. You know, many of us, the symptoms of our life is this is what happens every day. We get up every morning, we start cutting, you know, burning the wick on both ends. We get up early, we run around all over the place, and we just collapse in bed at night. And you can do that for a few minutes, a few moments, a few months, but then it turns into a pattern. And pretty soon you're like, I just can't go on. I just, I'm tired. Can't remember last time that God and I had a good moment together. I just emotionally don't have what it takes. I'm just physically don't have what it takes. I'm just exhausted. It's here under that broom tree where he's fearful, he's exhausted, he's isolated, he's withdrawn, that now the voice and feelings of utter hopelessness come to him. And he prayed under that broom tree that he might die. He said, it is enough now, Lord. Just, just take my life. Just take my life. I, I'd just rather not be alive than to be under this kind of pressure and this kind of fear. You know, we've had several suicides in the last year around our church. Let me take a moment to talk about that. First of all, some of God's choice servants wrestled with suicide. Elijah's one, Moses is one, Jonah's another. These were not people that were necessarily out of God's will. They just were folks who were living in a broken world. And living in a broken world with pressure and evil people chasing after you, you can get discouraged, you can get depressed, you can even get to the place of hopelessness. But why is suicide even wrong? Remember I had a guy who was exploring Christianity one time at our church asked me that question. He says, it's because it's selfish and because if you you kill yourself, your family's sad. I'm like, no, that's not why suicide's wrong. Suicide is wrong is because God is the author of life. And so when you take your own life, you're taking something that doesn't belong to you. That's why it's morally wrong. God can take life and God can give life. So whenever God takes somebody's life, it's actually moral because God can take what's already his. So when you take your own life, you're actually putting yourself in the place of God and you're saying, I can take something that ultimately belongs to God. So that's why it's wrong. It's important to understand that because putting yourself in the place of God is what makes suicide immoral. But do you know what you do when you worry? You put yourself in the place of God. You say to yourself, you know, I don't know that I can trust God to handle this situation, so I'm going to, you know, energize the world. I'm going to control the world through my worrying thoughts, and I'm going to control the things that I can't trust God to control. You're putting yourself in the place of God. You know what happens when you hold bitterness or a grudge and don't forgive somebody? You're putting yourself in the place of God and saying, I can't trust God to be judged, so I'm going to keep a tally, whatever everybody's done wrong, what they deserve. Now, what does all that mean? I had somebody come up to me about a month ago, and they said, I had a friend who committed suicide, and I know what that means. I I know that means that they're in hell. I said, why do you say that? He said, well, because I know that's the one thing God can't forgive. I said, where'd you get that? I don't know, I guess I heard that somewhere. I said, suicide is putting yourself in the place of God. Worry is putting yourself in the place of God. Bitterness is putting yourself in the place of God. I got great news. It's all immoral, but it's all forgivable. And maybe you have a friend or a neighbor or a family member who, or somebody back in high school or college and you just went, oh my goodness, it was the shame that my family member did this and now it's the guilt that I'm never gonna see him again. I want you to hear these words. Suicide 
is forgivable. Suicide, like anything, is forgivable by God. That you can see those. And who knows what caused it? Was it a chemical problem of being in a broken world? Maybe. Was it a lie of the evil one who said you'd be better off or everybody else would be better off without you? Who knows what caused it? Was it a moment where our heart or our, our will or our emotion was not necessarily in sync with the truth? Probably. But know this. Suicide, like any other waywardness from God, can be forgiven by God. The cross is bigger than everything, including that. And if Elijah struggled with this and God works with him, wouldn't he work with us? Which is interesting where Elijah goes. He, he, he goes from the sense of hopelessness and you find out the, the root of his hopelessness is this desire he needs to, to, to live up to somebody's expectations. As he's crying out for God to kill him, he says, for I am no better than my father's. Well, who said you had to be? You go back through the passage, you don't see God saying, all right, Elijah, I'm going to put you in the game, but you've got to be better than your dad. No one's ever said that. No one's ever told him that. God hasn't told him that. And yet in this moment of despair, you find out that his whole life he's been driving to be better than his father's. That there's something about that lie in him that has driven him and driven him. And as he finds himself collapsed under the broom tree, he goes, this is it. I gave it my best shot, but I'm not better than my father's. Often when we get discouraged, we begin to compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to other people. And we compare our weaknesses to their strengths. We wonder why we feel bad. Or sometimes we compare our present to our past and say, you know, before I was discouraged, I was a better mom. Before I was discouraged, I used to be a better dad. You know, before I had this slump in my performance, I used to be a much better employee. And it's that comparison that drives you deeper and deeper into the ground. And it's that symptom you've got to really take hold of before it drives you deeper and deeper like it is with, with Elijah. Listen to a woman, her name's Nehu Sanguin. She's a doctor of internal medicine. And she was discharging patients and she realized that there was spiritual and psychosocial issues that related to physical illness that she wanted to get her, her finger on. So she decided whenever she discharged a patient, she would ask three questions. Why do you think this happened to you, this particular disease? Why this disease and not a different one? And why now? She said these three questions would change her career. She was talking to Robert. He was in his uh, 60s. As he was leaving the hospital from a heart attack, she said, well, why do you think it was a heart attack? And why do you think right now in your life? And she was shocked for him to say, you know, I've never been able to please my father. I've got an Ivy League education. I've got a seven-figure income. I've got a great wife and a great family and a great job and a great company. You know, I've never felt like I could live up to my father's example and his expectations for me. You know, Doc, the weird thing is, my dad's been dead for six years. And I know exactly why I had a heart attack. It's my body telling me that I am worn out from trying. And she realized that often as doctors, we're, we're helping the physical body, but we're not asking the right questions to figure out what is the lie that Robert had is the same one Elijah had. I'm trying to live up to something that even dad made, didn't even want for me. But it is a powerful lie that has led him to this point to which God steps in and offers some incredibly practical remedies. 
First remedy, take care of your physical needs. Your, your, your water tank is low, your sleep tank is low, your food tank is low. So as he lay there, he slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now that's good spiritual advice right there. We got to do some more eating. And he looked and there by his head, God baked him a cake. God is great. He bakes him a chocolate cake and there it is. He's eating the cake baked on coals and God's got some little water for him, little Fuji water to drink. And so he ate and he drank and he took a nap. He lay down again. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is because you've been running yourself ragged, you're collapsed on bed under a broom tree and God says, you got to work out. You got to eat better. You got to get some better thing in your body and you need to rest. You've been burning on all ends for so long, there's just no reservoir left. Just so practical what God tells him. So one, take care of your physical needs. The second thing God tells him is seek my strength. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. So he's taking a nap again. He wakes up. The angel taps him on the shoulder, touches him and says, hey, time to get up. Guess what? Spiritual time, it's time to eat. Because, and here's why, the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank again. And it's from the strength of what God provided for him to his physical needs of the food that he's going to go all the way to Horeb. Now what I love about this is you get to see the tenderness of God. He is such a wonderful counselor. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He says, listen, the journey's too great for you. Let me come alongside and help you. He doesn't say, I heard that you said you wanted me to kill you. I can't believe you'd say that. That is so wrong, you should be ashamed of yourself. Do you not know that suicide is immoral because life belongs to me and you should be saying that? No. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He meets him where he is in his pain and says, wow, I want to empathize with you. This has been tough. It's been a tough journey. It's been a long famine. And notice, he doesn't even tell him to eat some food and run off. But Elijah's Mr. Go, go, go. I can sort of relate to that. So he's like, hey, rest, calm down. Let's have a little food. Let's eat a little bit. But Elijah's like, all right, I'm feeling good. I got some food. It's time for me to run for 40 days in the strength of this food. (laughs) And so he's going to basically wear himself out again with the strength he got. And he's going to head to Horeb. That's where he's going to go. And he is going to wander through some of the most treacherous territory. Where before he and his servant had gone from Jezreel to Jezebel, that was 90 miles. That would be the distance from here to here. He is now by himself going to travel on a map 220 miles straight. But the roads to get there are so wandering, it's going to take him 420 miles to actually get there. 10 miles a day, 40 days, going 400 miles through some of the most barren, some of the most lonely, some of the most treacherous territory in all the earth. And you wonder why he's set up for another bout of depression. I got to travel that part of the country and just look at it. This is how it feels to be in the wilderness. You're just climbing these massive, steep hills. You can't even see where you're going because the monstrous mountains before you and there's no trees, there's no vegetation, there's nothing. You ever feel like you're wandering through that for 420 miles? Some of you are feeling like you're there now. It's cold, it's hard, 
every step just to get up, to keep moving, to say, well, I hope there's something better on the other side. Is nobody with you? You wonder if God's still around. You wonder if there's still hope. It's treacherous. Yet he'll travel for 40 days, 10 miles a day, to get to the mountain of Horeb. And here God will meet with him. And God will say, Elijah, you keep doing the same things over and over and you've got to stop. So here's the next remedy. You've got to resist this tendency to isolate yourself. I didn't tell you to leave. You just ran another 420 miles by yourself. So the next remedy is to resist isolating yourself. He arose and he went the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in verse 9, he goes into a cave. He spends a night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in this cave? What are you doing in your bed? What are you doing here? And again, you just see the gentleness of God, even while he rebukes and prods and admonishes, you hear his tenderness in the form of a question. What are you doing here? Come on. Prophets don't belong in caves. You isolate yourself so much, you've got to resist this tendency to isolate that's causing you to make things worse. We came across one of those caves. Again, look at the territory. This is looking down from that mountain. It's one of those caves over on the left. And Elijah, you can, you can picture him in the cave when God whispers in and says, Hey, buddy, what, what are you doing in here? No wonder you feel dark and lonely. You're in a dark, lonely place. Yet when we get discouraged, we, it's like a magnet goes on in our life and we get drawn toward negativity. We get drawn toward places that make things worse instead of better. To which here, God will say, the next remedy is you've got to capture your stinking thinking to Elijah. So he says, what are you doing in here? And if you remember from two weeks ago, I told you there's a lie that Elijah believes, and it's not true. It's addressed in the book of Romans, and it's going to be addressed here today. This is this lie that has totally destroyed Elijah's life. It's a, it's a superior lie that he's the only one that's obeying God. It's a sense of loneliness, but it is the stinking thinking thought that has been paralyzing him into depression. Here it is. So he said, second time he said this now, might be actually the third. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Everybody else is doing the wrong thing. Everybody else has torn down your altars. Everybody else killed all your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And now they seek to take my life. Only one doing the right thing. Everybody's trying to kill me. I mean, what am I doing in this cave? I'm trying to save my hide. That's what I'm trying to do. And God is going to tell him, you're not the only one left. In fact, I want to go meet Elijah in just a, a few minutes. Uh, by the way, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed down yet before Baal. But this lie that he thinks he's the only one becomes the thing that makes him withdraw, becomes the thing that causes him to isolate. It becomes the reason he feels superior to other people because he's the only one that's obeying. And God says, you've got to capture this lie. This lie is destroying you, and yet he's going to repeat it again. So, in this next remedy, God appears to him now in this cave and says, I want you to rediscover your relationship with me. He said, go out now, stand on the mountain before the Lord. Now, keep in mind, this mountain, Horeb, is, is the mountain area where God had provided the Ten Commandments to Moses. So, this is a reconnection to a spiritual connection in the past. He goes, so stand before the mountain of the Lord. And the Lord passed by, reminds us of Moses, 
A great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake! But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire! But the Lord was not in the fire. You see, Elijah was used to God working in big things. There's miracles, and there's resurrection, and there's rain coming down. But God says, no, listen, what you need now is not a bunch of that. You need to rediscover me as the still, small voice. I want to meet with you right now as the still, small voice. And God is actually reminding him of Mount Sinai. This is a reenactment of Mount Sinai. Remember back in Exodus 19, 18, when God appeared to his people, he appeared with what? Smoke, fire, and an earthquake. And God is appearing to Elijah and saying, hey, I worked with Moses that you're trying to live up to, and I worked with him through wind and through earthquakes and through fire, just like I'm doing now. But listen, I want to meet you where you are in a different way, in a new way. I want to meet you in the still, small, quiet voice with you. And he does. He says, in order for you to find what you need from me, to rediscover me in the midst of your discouragement, you need to change some patterns. And here's the patterns. Elijah heard this. He went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and he said, a second time he said it, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, now for the third or fourth time, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek to take my life. To which God finally says, you've got to change these thought patterns. You've got to change these withdrawal patterns. Here's what I want you to do. Get out of the cave. Get out of bed. Go. Return your way to the wilderness. I've got some work for you to do. I don't feel like it. You don't have to feel like it. But just start moving. Start moving. It'll be momentum. I'm going to work with you in the momentum. And I've got some stuff for you to do. You feel worthless. You feel like I don't have anything for you to do. I've got some assignments. I want you to anoint Haziel, king over Syria. Then I want you to do some anointing of Jehu, the son of Mimish, the, uh, Mimshi as king over Israel. And by the way, Elisha, the son of Shavat of Abel, you'll anoint as prophet in your place. So by the way, there's people around, in fact, there's one of them that I want you to use. And then he'll go on to say, and over 7,000 people I have reserved for me that have not bowed down to you. But he's saying, change your patterns. You're isolating, go get to work. You think you're alone? I want to partner you up with a guy named Elisha. You think you're the only one left? No, 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 the 7,000. He's taking on these patterns to change them. Depression requires intervention. Threefold, the conditions, the symptoms, and ultimately the remedy. So here's what I would like us to do as our takeaway. I want you to pick one symptom and one remedy for you this week. Whether you say, well, I'm not really depressed, but whatever it is, you say, well, oh, wow, I didn't realize that I could be. What are the things you're drawn toward? What's a symptom? Maybe you have a tendency to isolate. Maybe you have a tendency to not see yourself being exhausted until it's too late. Maybe you have a tendency to withdraw or be fearful or be hopeless or compare yourself. I want you to pick one. You see, that's the symptom that comes up more often than not for me. And then I want you to pick just one remedy. Maybe your remedy is, I've got to start taking better care of myself. Maybe your remedy is, I've got to start seeking God and his thoughts on these things. Maybe, you know what, if I'm withdrawal, I've got to really resist isolating. Maybe for you, you've got this one reoccurring thought that drives you into the ground and you're going to say, I've got to start capturing my stinking thinking. I've got to change some patterns in my life. But I want you to pick one symptom and one remedy that this week you're going to begin every day to say, okay, God, I'm working on that. God, help me. Meet with me. I want to hear you in the still, small voice. Because if you do, you're going to find hope. If you do, you're going to get unstuck from where you are. And God will meet you. Not always in the earthquake and not always in the fire, 
but God will meet you in a still, small voice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is. Thank you for how helpful it is. And thank you that you meet us in our valleys as well as our mountaintops. We ask for each person here, Father, that your spirit will engage them and nudge them and draw near to them, empathizing with them, for you are our great high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week.